Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. We record each episode immediately after we watch each film. I'm Adam Urich, along with Jim Massessa. Today's episode features Pan's Labyrinth. Jim's going to take us through the official Criterion summary and specs. An Academy Award-winning dark fable set five years after the end of the Spanish Civil War, Pan's Labyrinth encapsulates the rich visual style and genre-defying craft of Guillermo del Toro. 11-year-old Ophelia, Ivana Bequero, in a mature and tender performance, comes face-to-face with the horrors of fascism when she and her pregnant mother are uprooted to the countryside, where her new stepfather, Sergi Lopez, a sadistic captain in General Francisco Franco's army, hunts down Republican guerrillas refusing to give up the fight. The violent reality in which Ophelia lives merges seamlessly with her fantastical interior world, where she meets a fawn in a decaying labyrinth and is set on a strange, mythic journey that is at once terrifying and beautiful. In his revisiting of this bloody period in Spanish history, del Toro creates a vivid depiction of the monstrosities of war infiltrating a child's imagination and threatening the innocence of youth. This movie came out in 2006. It's 119 minutes long, so basically two hours. It's in color, 5.1 surround sound, which is in Spanish. We watched it with English subtitles. Um, The aspect ratio is 1.85 to 1. And if you're following along at home, the criterion number is 838. I believe we have both seen this movie before. Yeah, I watched it um, maybe a year or so after it came out. Um, and I honestly, I remembered a couple things, but I, I didn't really remember the end of it, uh, or, or any of the like super major plot points. I more got the images, right. I guess, which is, you know, I know that's sort of Guillermo del Toro's thing is his like, visual, the visual yeah. aspect of his film, which we can get into and talk about. I've definitely seen this a few times before. I did see it originally in the theater and I'm going to see if I can find a link to this. When I went to see this in the theater, I thought this was a kid's movie because there was a very specific trailer that they were running on TV that only showed all of Ophelia's like imagination world. And it was mm. there was like this lighthearted music playing in the background. And it was like in a world where a child's imagination, blah, blah, blah. And there was nothing of the war, nothing of the captain. So I was, a, you know, I feel like that I, I saw that. Because very misleading. Now that you start to say that, I feel like I had that impression when I first started, when I watched the movie the first time, not getting the history aspect of it, and that the movie, you know, was promoted in part with that, like it's a children's story, which it is definitely not it a is children's not. story. This is not a movie for kids. No, it's. I'm pretty sure it's rated R, and it should be the. I'm well. I'm sure we'll get here, but the scene with the farmer and his son, towards the beginning of the movie. Once that came on in the theater, I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> this is not what I thought it was." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's uh, even watching it. I didn't, I didn't really remember. I remembered the like the torture scene is kind of famous. Yeah. In the movie, it's very violent. I mean, this movie is it's it's not all violence, but when there's violence, it's violent. Yeah, and I think that's. Uh, I had the same reaction kind of too, because you kind of turned your face away when you're watching. <laughs> 
<laughs> there were a couple times when, like, when he when he smashed the the, the son's face in with a bottle, and I mean, you see it; it's pretty. Yeah, his like it was, nose it was is collapsing, his, and I didn't I didn't remember that at all in the movie, and uh, I was like, oh crap, that's yeah, that was pretty violent. Yeah, yeah. So what what kind of reminded me the violence in this reminded me a lot of um, Inglorious Bastards, mm. in the sense of like how you were seeing a lot of the wounds and like people being like cut or you know his face smashed in. And I think that's what's kind of I say this all the time about uh, Quentin Tarantino movies. I mean, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, two of my favorite movies. But I, I feel like a lot of his films were are just gratuitous violence. Like, let's see how violent we can make this film right. and how much right. violence we can show on screen. Tarantino, you're talking about exactly. And I think what you see with Guillermo del Toro here is that the violence, like you you don't expect it. You're watching this movie and you're we're probably what like a half an hour in before the scene with the sun. Yeah, and it's nothing like that. It's you. You kind of are getting the sense of that this guy is a bad guy just right. from his interactions with Ophelia at the beginning, where he kind of grabs her wrists when she offers her left hand instead of her right hand to shake his hand. Right, right. Or that he's looking at his watch. He's like, "Oh, they're ten minutes late when his wife's arriving," and you get that he's an intimidating looking guy. But when you see that, I think it, and throughout the movie, there's only those spots of violence right. that you see, and it's, it's it's used to emphasize his character. It's not used to like gross you out as an audience. It's it's moving the plot right. along. Right, exactly. I, I think that's, uh, you know, in my opinion, I, I'd rather watch, if there's going to be violence in a movie, I have more respect for a director using violence that way than yeah. at least the way that Tarantino has used it in his later films, uh, where it's just kind of for shock value. Right. Kind of like like horror movies today have kind of gone that direction. It's yeah. one of the reasons why I'm not really a fan of a lot of horror films, because they're just gratuitous. You have like Saw or, you know, some of these other movies that are just over the top, right? Violent, and they're they're grossing you out, not scaring you, and they you think you're being scared, but you're really just being grossed out. Yeah. Whereas you go back and watch a lot, like you go watch like Psycho or some of these other like classic right. thrillers and horror, what will be considered the horror movies. Um, yeah, those know, were more scary. suspenseful, and right. now it's like moved to more just like gore horror. Speaking of the violence uh, in the, there's a a scene there's a battle in the woods in this movie and i kind of remember from the special features that i don't know if this was filmed in like a special like protected forest that scene like a national park or something like that but they weren't allowed to use actual like ca- blood capsules or anything like that so all the blood you see in that whole battle is all cg and i think hmm. even um like when you see the ground, like a bullet strikes the ground and like puffs of smoke. I think that's all CG too. They really, hmm. I guess, wanted to shoot there, and and that was like the deal they had to make to, to do that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, you do there, the CG even for when when was this? What you say? Two thousand six. Yeah, I mean, even for that time, it's it was pretty good. It's pretty good. There were times I think with the fire, you could tell it was CG. Yeah, and some fire of the... is usually hard to really pull off. You see that a lot, and t- even TV shows today that are just low budget right. have CG fire. It's like obvious that something's not actually not on fire. Some of the creatures, I think, were the, the smaller creatures, like the bugs. And yeah, the fairies. The, the, those were. Yeah, those but, weren't as very. I mean, yeah, for two thousand six, that was that was pretty good. Well, so one one question I have is, I guess I'm trying to understand exactly the fawn. Is he a is he a minotaur, no. or not? He's a fawn. So aren't minotaurs are what are at the center of a labyrinth, though, right? Isn't that the mythology? Yeah, about that? that's true. That, I guess that's where I was always confused about this. That I always, having seen the movie a long time ago, and then years later I read this book 
um, this actually kind of weird and funny book called The Minotaur Takes a Cigarette Break, which is a great book if you've never read it. Never read it. And it's, uh, it's a story about a minotaur that works at a barbecue restaurant in uh, North Carolina, I think. He's like a line chef. Okay. Um, and it's in this idea of this world in which these mythical creatures exist, like it's no big deal, kind of like a true blood scenario. Oh, right, right. Uh, and he can't talk, of course, because a minotaur has the head of a bull and the body of a man. Right. And it's sort of his just struggle with daily life and, you know, the the fact that he's a minotaur and he, you know, has the urge to kill people but doesn't and, you know. He's probably kind of serving his brothers for, like, food then, too. I mean, if he's working at a barbecue yeah, joint. I don't really... It, it's I read it in college. A professor had it. It was I mean it's yeah. I have to read it again. It's it, it was a good book. But anyway, so but so that was two thoughts. The other thought I had when I when he was just being described as a fawn is I thought of um, the Decemberists album, The Hazards of Love, which talks about a fawn. A girl goes into the woods and she mm. sees this wounded fawn and she goes to take care of it and then it turns like into a man. It's kind of a, it's it's sort of a, that album is not like other Decemberist albums. For two things, one, it's a concept, like it's a concept album, so the whole album is telling a story, kind of like Tommy, the right, Who's right. Tommy, and it's a harder rock edge for that band, but also, I mean, you listen to the story from beginning to end, and the album from beginning to end, it kind of has a cool story. Similar playoff of the Pan's Labyrinth in that sense, I guess, in, in some some weird ways. The, but yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I liked the movie a lot. The uh, similarity I would think of is more of um, like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Like there's definitely fawns in that same type of CG with like the backwards knee thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I guess that's supposed to be like how a goat's leg. Yeah. yeah. I guess it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Be like a dog. Right. Those fawns are just kind of the legs of a goat and a human's head, like humans torso up to the head. That's a centaur, isn't it? But not, not four legs like a horse, just two legs like a, the back end of a goat, but then the upper body is a human. And I think that's more of the classical fawn, like you would hear of in like a Shakespeare story. Mm-hmm. So Pan in this is like demon looking almost. His whole body is not yeah. human. Well, it's the basis sort of, I mean, that that image is of what Pan is, is essentially like the, it's a, you know, used as like a pagan symbol of yeah. fertility in that sense it's it's what in the uh, Christ, uh christian religion that the image of uh during like yeah they base the 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 idea of satan off of because there is no description of satan in the bible of what he looks like and so during at, at some point probably in I, I don't know what century christianity was fighting with paganism and sort of a you know they wanted that religion to succeed and among the many things that christianity adopted from paganism into their religion one of them was branding the pagan god of fertility which had that image mm-hmm. and making that into what satan looked like in addition to many things like basing jesus's birth around right uh christmas, christmas time the christmas tree has come into that easter all that type of stuff has been adopted from yeah he definitely is so pan in this movie definitely has like the big goat horns whereas i think in a lot of other portrayals of fawns they don't have like full horns like that they'll usually have like little nubs of horns but um Definitely, one thing Guillermo del Toro is known for is like kind of his creatures in his movies, like that big prosthetic CGI visual look. And so I think he really, he pulled that off here, I think, great. It doesn't look cheesy. I never could really tell where the CG 
of him ended and the actual like plastic rubber suit began right um like his ears kind of wiggled i think they were cg but his eyes i was never sure if the eyes were cg or if they were being like animatronically controlled yeah you know the eyes are a good point that i noticed that as the movie progressed that his eye when he when he first woke up his eyes were very clouded almost like he was blind and then at the end of the movie his eyes were clear you could see so i don't know if that was like the magic happening that he was kind of awakening up so there were a lot of like things that kind of ran through the story like that that kind of changed so his eyes the moon before they even talk about the moon in the first few shots where there is a moon it's a crescent Mm-hmm. And it does change throughout the movie because we know we're building up to what should be a full moon. Right. And when we first see the moon, it's a crescent, which matches her birthmark. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time we see her. And it's the first time we see the moon. There's little things like the lottery ticket. So they find a lottery ticket in the woods at one point when the army is tracking down the guerrilla uh, fighters they get to a campfire and there was like a crumbled up lottery ticket later towards the end of the movie. One of the soldiers is listening to the radio and they're reading off lottery numbers on the radio and he's holding the ticket in his hand, seeing if he, cause he kept the lottery. Oh, ticket. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, th- there's a lot of little things like that, that it's not the focus of the movie, but it kind of makes the world feel fuller. A lot of little uh, habits of the captain, his smoking, drinking shaving like we see that early on in different scenes and i think all three of those things kind of come up later on you know they're just part of his character so he's he smokes but then he throughout the movie he talks about how good real tobacco is and how it's hard to find in the torture scene he offers his cigarette of the real tobacco to the person he's torturing the drinking comes up several times Mm -hmm. you know there's poison drink there's when his face is cut he's drinking the watch he's fixing his watch in the beginning winding the watch a lot and then we learn the history of the watch and right can, that it was his father's watch you see that yeah. oh yeah the glass was cracked that's why the glass was cracked so i think a lot of those things were great they kind of like tie the movie together without being in your face about it yeah and one one other thing too that you see from the very be- that the almost very early on when uh when the mother is sick and the doctor comes in kind of for the first time and is treating her he says like, oh, you know, you need to sleep. Here's this stuff. Yep. And he puts this, he's like two drops, only two drops, never anymore. And he puts those drops in uh, in her in her glass. And then later in the movie, and I mean, it's very like they'd put it down. There's a close-up of the glass. Again, it right. goes back, I think, to when we did The Man Who Knew Too Much and the, the little beret or something in there, you know, when we had the brooch. Right. And the close-up, right, right. and you're like, you know this is going to be important later on in the movie. And then, of course, Ophelia uses that and puts that into his drink, and she puts a, a bunch of drops yeah. into it. It's like, when is, when is that going to come back? It's, I mean, that's such a classic. I mean, I think that's kind of interesting to see that, we, you know, you look back in the from that Hitchcock, that old-school filmmaking carries all the way through into a movie made, you know, like 70 years later, having the same type of thing where it's very clearly explained that this is what this does and then there's a close-up of it and you're kind of like it's it's cemented into you right so that when you see it later you're like oh yeah that's the stuff and oh she's putting like three or four drops in with the doctor said only doing two drops right it's uh, the uh Chekhov's gun I guess like you know it's it's there for a reason they're yeah. showing it early on so it's going to come up and to in play later on yep exactly yeah there's something else like that I forget what it was but uh oh the uh, antibiotic bottle yes yes which played a huge key of him just seeing that and then you know, looking at it and going, oh, yeah, that's the same thing. And that's kind of how he catches the doctor. I mean, what, 
Yeah, I had the same. Uh, yeah, like you're saying that. Oh, it's. Um, I think that was just the final thing in his head to put put two and two together. But really, it's like probably. I mean, the doctor's not making the glass vials. No, like, but if you think about the fact that there's no other doctor right, around, right. like how would they get this? And it happens to be the same thing, and he, you know, just puts two and two together. I never got the feeling early on that the captain suspected the doctor of kind of betraying him or being in collusion with the the other army but mercedes who i guess she's considered like housekeeper or she's not a maid she's just kind of like the she runs everything in that household it seemed like all of their interactions he was always a little hesitant around her like even from the first scene with them together, he always has like a hand on her shoulder, kind of mm-hmm. like in a powerful way, does a lot of pauses before she walks out of the room, like he'll say one last thing to her. And yeah, I, I, th- I didn't know if he was, I kind of got the feeling that maybe he, he did know about her and the one loving part of him just like couldn't bring himself to turn on her. But then eventually he just has to. That relationship was weird to me. It felt like a lot of her moves were obvious. Even Ophelia calls her out pretty early on saying like, you're helping the other men, aren't you? She's only been in the household for two days and she knows this. How does the captain not know this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely done also to to help build that suspense. Yeah. You know, it's definitely their interaction. The captain and um, Mercedes is very suspenseful. And she I would almost argue she is the hero of this movie. Mercedes. Ophelia feels like she should be. She's the little girl. She's on the cover of the the DVD. She's kind of who's driving the plot along. But Ophelia really, not Ophelia, Mercedes is really the driver of change for both Ophelia's world and for the captain's world and the army. And she's one of the few characters left standing in the end. Yeah. I mean, how is she a driver for Ophelia's world, though? Well, she's kind of the surrogate mother for Ophelia because Ophelia's mother is pretty much unconscious the entire movie or very absent. There's a couple scenes where Ophelia kind of like is talking with Mercedes and like lays her head on her and saying how she doesn't want anything bad to happen to her towards the end. Ophelia Mercedes tells Ophelia I'm leaving and Ophelia's like, no, no, take me with you. And they end up getting caught. So that wouldn't have happened to Ophelia if it hadn't been for Mercedes. I guess maybe not more for her fantasy world, but Ophelia does talk to Mercedes about some of that. Like, oh, I saw fairies. And she can tell her about her fairy tale stories, whereas everybody else that hears about that says, like, you're too old for this. You should stop reading those stories. And Mercedes kind of, not that she's encouraging her, but she listens and kind of shares her own stories with her. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the interesting thing also through the movie is really, was Ophelia's world real? Like, yes. was she just imagining everything? I mean, I think it's set up so well that uh, she sees this bug, and then the book that she's given, that she has, all the pages are just blank, so was it just a journal? Like, where did she just find that? And nobody, nobody, as far as I could tell, ever sees her with that book? So was that book even real or was that just part of her imagination? Or was the book real and just one of the books that she had with her? Right. And was the and was everything that she was doing a way to kind of get out of her mind? You know, like this the amount of stress that she's dealing with, was it a way for her to kind of manage and, and deal with all of that? And did it really did it really happen? Because, you know, you get to the end of the movie 
and when the the captain sees her he doesn't see the fawn right she's talking to the fawn and he just sees her like talking to nothing right and when she gets shot you know she's there and then it she's bleeding and it kind of fulfills the whole thing and they cut to her father and her mother and she's kind of like in this dream state but it cuts back to her lying on the ground and right. she smiles but then she she dies it's obvious that she took her last breath and that she's dead so it's sort of like uh did you know did it really happen is it all in her imagination yeah the only other thing that i could think of where her fantasy world kind of impacted real life was towards the end she is locked up in her room in the attic and um pan tells her you have one last chance you have to steal your brother and get out and she says like how how can i get out they've locked me in here and he gives her the chalk and she does somehow get out of her room they don't yeah, show that's it that's true that I mean, is it's possible yeah. she fi- figured out a way to escape but that was the only time i thought maybe it was real <laughs> well that's true cuz she does have there's the there's a door like drawn on the or there's right. a chalk door drawn on the wall when mercedes comes in but was she just playing around like yeah. again was they do a good job it? of like you never know yeah, I mean, I think that's the whole point is that the movie ends and you're not really sure whether it was real. And like, yeah, she died, but she fulfilled the pro- prophecy. And then it's really like she's her earth, her human body is dead. But really, she's, right. you know, in the underworld. And that's the whole point because her mother's there and her mother died. And we assume that's her Taylor father, her real father. Right. Yeah. But even that prophecy being fulfilled has no impact on the real world it's not like yeah. some other movie where the people who are left alive might see like oh what's this weird thing happening and then you know oh it was real the whole time he doesn't come out and really hit you with that you're left wondering yeah i mean i think that's kind of the whole point though i think you know and that what's that's kind of what makes movies like this great is because the movie ends and you you're on your own to figure out right what it is it's not hitting you over the head with this is what happened yeah. here's an explanation for everything those aren't as fun. Same thing with any type of story. A book you read, you know, it's great to have the, it end and you kind of have to decide for yourself what happens yeah, going forward. I think it makes it, for me at least, again, I've seen this a few times, it's more fun for me to rewatch this because the ending is not obvious. You don't know one way or the other, is this real, is this not real? So each time you view it, you can maybe pick out other things and maybe lean one way or the other and say, oh, I, n- I never thought about this one aspect before. I don't know. I, I really like that. The... And again, we're just kind of jumping around here when the captain walks out and he's surrounded by the army and he says, you know, tell my son and he kind of gets cut off and she says, he won't even know your name. And then they kill the captain. It reminded me earlier in the movie when Ophelia kind of screws up and takes the takes the food and a couple of the fairies get killed. Pan is very upset with her and he's yelling at her and he says, you know, you can't make it into the underworld now. All memory of you shall fade in time, he says. And when he said that, I remember from previous viewings, oh, at the end, they say something very similar to the captain. And I often felt like, and I think we're supposed to feel this, her fantasy world is kind of mimicking what's happening around her in real life. And I think that's kind of a little foreshadowing of her imagination and the real world kind of mixing together. Yeah, yeah, that's what, true. What did you think of the... um? I don't know if he has a name, the creature with... Oh, yeah. that that See, that's one of the images that I remembered from this movie was that guy. I thought that was a really... He's got the eyeballs in his hands. Yeah, I mean, again, I know... So I know that Guillermo del Toro carries around like a little... Like he carries around a, a, a notebook that he sketches in and draws oh, things. And, cool. and, and I've seen interviews with him in the past in which he's like opened it up and they're like, 
crazy like he has like writing and then all this drawings and stuff like that so I feel like that's definitely one of those creatures that just comes out of his imagination and that like having to put his eyes in his hands and then put them over his face so that he could see Um, and I mean again another sense of like the violence is when he grabs his fairies and he like rips them apart and you see that happening there's a creature in I think the second Hellboy movie and Guillermo del Toro did both of those movies as well there's a I think it's like an angel or something and it's got a very big flat head with no eyes and it to me it those two creatures look very I mean the rest of them don't really look similar but I think the faces yeah I mean created both of them did I see Hellboy I think I saw parts of the first Hellboy movie other than that I don't I think this is the only Guillermo del Toro movie I've ever seen um I've definitely seen several of his movies I saw The Devil's Backbone that he did there was a movie that came out like a year or two ago around Halloween um crimson peak i saw that one okay I've heard um that. that's like a haunted house yeah type movie i saw the strain which is a tv series he did both hellboys uh, I, I feel like i've seen most of his movies i haven't seen chronos but i know that's also in the criterion right. collection and i believe devil's backbone is in the criterion collection oh too. is it okay i know I, there's three movies of his that are in the criterion collection i haven't seen have the like criterion version set. of it but i i did see that i think it was on netflix years ago mm. But I know the actor that played the guy with the eyeballs in his hand is also the same actor that plays Pan. Oh, okay. He's in both suits. And he's one of the main characters in Hellboy as well. I think Mm. there's like a fish type guy. I don't remember their names. But he's like one of Hellboy's like little band of people that go around with him. He's a very unique looking person. I don't remember the actor's name, but he's he's very tall, very lanky. So he works well for a lot of those costumes. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I think that's his visual style is very is very unique in that sense. He's one of those directors that just has like a look. And I think what's interesting with this movie that I made a note of is that the color palette is is interesting. I think yeah, you kind of you kind of get it's very blue. It's, it's kind of muted. Yeah, I felt like. And there's a great scene in the beginning when she's in bed with her mother and you kind of have this, it's this yellow and blue, like the blue light of night is kind of cast over mm-hmm. the, cast over them in bed. And then there's sort of this, just this like yellow glow from the fire. Right. And you only see that again at the very end of the movie when she's laying there dying. You see the, and like it's the like very blue fire. at night. No, no, no. Not, I mean, I don't think it's from that. I no. think it's it's the yellow light that comes in as she's like her imagination world. Oh. And that world is very warm and yellow and bright uh, where everything else in the movie has this muted tone to it. What's interesting too is I think that what they did is in the, in a couple of the scenes that are at night, especially the one, there's the one in the woods where I think Mercedes is walking through the woods. It's definitely a what's called a day for night scene where they shoot the film, they shoot the scene during the day, but then they convert it in post-production yeah. at, for, to make it look like night because you could tell with the lighting that was on the trees lighting on the leaves and right. bushes like it's that was that was not moonlight that was sunlight so i think that was kind of an interesting thing and i wonder if that goes to your comments about the fact that they were shooting in that protected forest so. right and they could only shoot at a certain time of the day maybe yeah that or the fact that of what goes into a night shoot like they'd have oh. to have a ton of lights and like yeah. all that stuff so that could be uh, an issue with them trying to do that versus shooting in the daytime i felt like that is a was almost detrimental to the visual of this movie. And I don't know if it was, it's just cause you know, it's 11 years old at this time, but the, the movie was never dark, dark, any scene that's supposed to be in the dark. It's never, it's not like true black. I feel like a lot of movies that come out now when you're supposed to be going into a dark room, 
they're using like true the true lighting you would see in that room there's no extra added lights so when yeah i mean even the different the big difference though is in the past 10 years would have been the fact that a lot of these movies are shot in digital and that's true you can light a scene with very very low lighting because the digital cameras can accept that right movie shot on film which i think this movie was uh yeah probably knowing him um, would have been a lot harder to pull that off you know with 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 film mm-hmm. and in addition to the visual style one of the things i noticed at the very beginning it didn't really carry all the way through to the end of the movie but i noticed at the very beginning there was the emphasis on the sound effects specifically when we first introduced the captain like you can really hear the leather like as he's yes. moving like i think the that leather thing in his leather leather gloves there were other things like him shaving and like the, the sound of the the, yeah. the the straight blade razor kind of going against his his face but definitely at the very beginning that just that sound of leather like him touching his leather gloves i think kind of added to that menacing quality that you knew this guy was a bad guy like it kind of happens again towards the end when mercedes gets surrounded by the the army the captain's not there but it's maybe like six or seven guys on horses i don't remember if it's uh Serrano or Garas, those were like the two mm-hmm. captain's henchmen. One of them gets off the horse and you could hear like the creak of the leather. He's kind of straightening his uniform as he walks towards her. But speaking of those, uh, what do you think of some of these secondary characters? Because there's a there's a couple and I mean, they are secondary characters. They don't have a lot of lines like Pedro, the doctor, even Serrano. They They felt real enough to me that you didn't need a whole lot of backstory with them. Yeah, I think... The movie definitely did a an interesting thing with you had all these other characters, but you really didn't get deep into who they were. Mm-hmm. Aside from Mercedes, the mother, Ophelia, and the captain, the doctor felt like the only one who you really kind of... He has a couple. He's got the most lines, I think, after yeah, Mercedes. Yeah, and, and even the rebels, I still felt like you were still kind of detached from hmm. detached from them. I mean, the, the, the few scenes with them in it... You know, even when Mercedes and the doctor kind of go and they like they do the scene where they kind of try to amputate the guy's leg. Yeah. Frenchy. I still felt you're not trying to understand their cause and get behind them. And like, well, they're, they're sort of this background plot that's moving along. This is a Spanish movie. And the time period is the Spanish Civil War. That's what's kind of happening here. Yeah. So I think by default, we're I don't really know. I don't think anything. About no. And I don't mean that it's like by not putting so much emphasis on those characters you're not being caught up in the fact that it's the movie isn't about the right. rebels coming right. against it's not the about captain. The war. It's about Ophelia. And like you said earlier, it's kind of Mercedes kind of tying all the plots together. Yeah. But it's really just this sort of the rebels are sort of the B plot of the movie that kind of going on in the background. And and the main plot is Ophelia and her trying to accomplish her tasks. And the captain is trying to accomplish his task by defeating the rebels. The rebels are trying to accomplish their thing by overthrowing the captain and you know succeeding but yeah i think i think it's done well because i didn't at any point think about who the rebels were or who any of those individual people people were to be attached to them even the guy stuttering and getting tortured i didn't feel like there was a lot invested in his character other than the fact that he was solely there to provide the captain an opportunity to show off even more how terrible he was and I think you show us the doctor and like give us an opportunity. Right, to do we see that. the the good intention of the doctor. I, I think you're you're kind of right about that too. The the fact that that soldier had a stutter, because I don't think we ever get his name, but we see him stuttering in another scene early on, and then 
they even after they capture him they say like oh great a stutterer this is going to take forever right um so i think that's to remind us hey this is the guy you saw before yeah uh, exactly you're you're, you're not attached to him because you don't even know his name but uh that one little aspect kind of brings him out so even with the the torture and the captain I feel like some movies like this where you have a bad guy, like this captain, you almost see two different versions of him. There's the public version that he shows everybody around him, but then when he's by himself, maybe he's a little different, and you as a viewer might get that, but other people don't, and sometimes something like that comes out and it's like a weird reveal. I feel like with the captain here, what everybody sees is who he is. When he's alone by himself, he's exactly the same as he is with them. He is... He's very precise. He's cleaning his his uniform when he's alone. He listens to like the same music on a Victrola. He shaves every morning. He smokes. He drinks. He's very straight laced. He's never like when he's alone, he doesn't like sit down and like now he can relax because he's by himself. He brings his true self to work. <laughs> yeah. So they give a little backstory about him, about his father, about how his father had died and like smashed his watch so his son would know what time he died. And that kind of, that's like your backstory of how the captain got to be the way yeah, he is. Yeah, and you know, honestly, I was confused. Well, not confused, but I, it was interesting to me the way that he kind of brushes off and didn't want to talk about his father. Mm-hmm. Almost in the sense that he was ashamed of him. By the end of the movie, and the fact that he's, because I was confused about, oh, he's fixing the watch, he smashed the watch. Okay, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would he, so would he fix the watch because he hated his father and he doesn't want that to be the thing that, like, you know, he he doesn't want his father to succeed by having the watch be broken so his son remembers it. But then by the end of the movie, when he pulls the watch out and he's trying to emulate what his father did, I think you realize that he, you know, the guy bringing that up made him feel sad and he didn't want to think about his father. Could be, yeah. But yeah, I, I think it took them to the end of the movie to make that realization. I just, the way the scene came off made it seem like he was ashamed of his father. He's definitely um, preparing for having his own son the whole time too and maybe... Maybe the watch, he's fixing it up to kind of pass it on to his son because it was his father's watch. And he definitely wants a son above all. He doesn't even, he doesn't seem to care about his wife at all. He never spends any time with her. Well, there's the one scene where the, he keeps, you know, he's talking to the doctor at the, sort of the beginning of the movie. And he says to the doctor, uh, well, he not says to the doctor, but he's just keeps referring to the, the baby that's inside his wife as his son, his son, his son. Right. And the doctor says, it questions him and asks him, how are you so sure that it's a boy? And he pauses and turns to him and he says, uh, well, don't f- with me. Yeah. Which was just like, okay. You know, because I, I was thinking the exact same thing right before the doctor said, I'm like, how does he know that it's his son? Obviously there's no ultrasound. He had no way to confirm it, but it's more of a confidence thing. He's like, oh, I would only have a son. I'm not going to have a daughter. Are you right. kidding me? Right. And during this time period, especially in that type of country. And that guy. And that guy <laughs> having a daughter would be the worst thing in the world in his mind. Yeah. One thing, another thing that going back kind of the torture scene, one of the things like I was kind of having a hard time, like, uh, like an eye roll moment was when he Mercedes kind of gets out of her things and she stabs him a couple times. Yeah. And then she cuts his face, but she doesn't kill him. Like to me that was just she's wh- not a killer. No. She said er- earlier on when she's talking to her brother, you know, she's living two two worlds. She's going back and forth between the bad guys and the good guys, and she tells him like I'm a coward. And he's like, "No, you're not." She's like, "I live with that man. I feed him. I take care of his house." She never says and I thought she said this from previous times I've seen this movie. I was waiting for her to say, but I can't kill him. 
or something like that. But she doesn't actually say that. Yeah, but I feel like she stabbed him like three or four times, and then um, that she uh, essentially he could have died from those wounds alone. Sure. And then she cuts his face. I, I, to me, it just felt kind of like, oh well, if she kills him, then that's that's the movie. But if she just cuts him and cuts his face open, which was pretty crap, that was pretty Oof. hard to watch. Especially later when he walks out and he's got like, and he, you know, he's got like the face gaping open. Um, stitches his own face back oh, together. Yeah, that was. And pretty, they show that. That was pretty gruesome. And yeah, for all for a long time, <laughs> they show him stitching his face. I just kind of was like, she doesn't. She runs out. I'm like, oh, here we go, because she doesn't kill him. I'm, and I mean, like the second she walks out the door, I'm like, here's the scene. She walks out. The guys see her. She's gonna get halfway into the woods. He'll run out and be like, oh, oh, get her, get her. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Yeah, I I think maybe that's. I don't know if this was intentional. Maybe that is to build suspense. So early, is it earlier? Yeah, before that, there's a similar scene where the doctor is coming out of the barn, the storeroom, I guess. So the doctor comes out and walks away and he gets shot in the back. Yeah. And this scene is very similar where she comes out and walks away and the soldiers even notice her. And then the captain. Yeah, runs they're out. like, oh, he let her go. And they're and I think that this that point, their reaction to that goes back to what you're saying earlier about the captain being this person that you see like in private or in public. Mm-hmm. You know, you see who he really is. And as the movie goes on, when you you, you notice, especially and I, I can't remember the guy's name, but the his like lieutenant Serrano. or whatever. Serrano, I think. Yeah. So you see him, you see his facial reaction the most when the captain like smashes that guy's face in yes you know he's kind of looking his face is kind of like oh come on he he knows the brutalities there and he doesn't like it you you get that sense from him on multiple occasions and what's most brutal about that scene is so after he which scene the 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 farmer so he smashes in the son's face then he shoots the dad and then he shoots the son who was probably gonna die anyway but he shoots him anyway then he continues to go through their bag and pulls out a dead rabbit. And they said they were just hunting rabbits. So he picks up the rabbit and turns to Serrano and says, next time check their bags better before you bring them to me. Kind of admitting like, yeah, they were telling the truth. I killed them, but it doesn't even phase him. Yeah. That's the brutality. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the killing was brutal, but it's nothing to him. Well, think about it. He even says to Ophelia, I mean, towards the end of the movie, he says to the one guard about anybody trying to come into the room, shoot the girl. Right. And then he, he, he shoots a little girl at the end of the movie, you know? Yeah. And essentially mur- uh, murders Ophelia. So, you know, like he's walking up, you know, he's going to kill her. And it doesn't even like, to me, I wasn't even shocked that he shot her because of the amount of brutality that he demonstrates throughout. Well, the, the movie film. does start with her dead and kind of plays in reverse. So we know she's going to die at some point. Yeah, but what I mean is like it's not Right, you're not you know it's it doesn't surprise you that he would do that. Right. Did you get the sense so there's a dinner party in the middle where we get the captain's backstory and they also kind of talk about how he met Ophelia's mother? Was there did you get the feeling that he was responsible for her husband's death, the tailor? Yeah, I kind of got that sense too. So they, she says, like, my husband used to make his uniforms or something like that. And then I can't, I don't recall. She does what, say he died in the war. Right. And then they say, one of the women says, like, oh, uh, how strange that you would meet again afterwards. Almost like he, the captain liked her, purposely made sure that maybe he didn't kill the husband, but he maybe sent him to the front lines or something. That That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, that he liked, he was attracted to her enough and then commanded her husband and then sent him to the front lines to die. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely possible. There's a biblical story, actually, that remind me of. Uh, oh. That's it. King David, I think, is something uh, he liked uh, some lady. 
so much, and he sends her husband to the front of a war going on purposely, so the husband dies, and then he can because he doesn't he doesn't want to have like an affair with her, so he purposely gets the husband killed, so he yeah. can. I'm wondering if that's supposed to be like a alliteration, no, whatever uh, similarity here. But if he did get the husband killed, then he really killed the entire family. The yeah. husband he gets he doesn't directly kill the mother, but he's. Re- basically responsible for her death so that's another interesting aspect of the the mother's death that is is an interesting aspect of this idea of was what ophelia was seeing real or imagined Mm -hmm. because that's i think one of the only real like full-on crossovers of what she was doing versus what like her imagination she has the mandrake mandrake root the mandrake root which kind of reminded me of harry potter (laughs) because they have the mandrakes and and I, I guess this is something, you know, that the fawn tops talks about, about a plant that like wanted to look like a human. Yeah. And it did look like a, like a little, like a fetus or something. Right. And I, I never, I never really got the whole mandrake thing in Harry Potter, but like, you know, they pull them out and they're screaming. Yeah. And then when, when she has, she puts it under there, puts it into the milk. Yep. And that's like, that she helps her mother get, blood. yeah, that helps the mother get better. And then when he pulls it out and they burn it and the mandrake's like screaming and then the mother dies, basically that she starts bleeding. And right. So was it? that she burned the mandrake and now there's nothing to protect her. Or was it while she was burning the mandrake, she was very upset with the Philia and like, yeah, right. But yeah, again, they do a good job of it's, it walks that fine line of, yeah. well, was it this or was it that? So some of the other similarities, and I don't think any of these were, in fact, I'm positive. They weren't intentional. There's the big frog in the tree. Mm-hmm. It's, I guess it's her first quest that she goes to. Uh, it reminded me of the Hayao Miyazaki film um my neighbor totoro where there's two little girls and basically they have this big imaginary world and one of the girls goes into a tree crawls in through the roots and finds totoro who's this whatever he is giant weird monster friendly monster that reminded me of it the chalk door where she goes to meet the guy with the eyeballs in his Mm -hmm. hands that really reminded me of the movie Coraline. if you've ever seen Coraline. Coraline. Oh, the, the uh, button eyes. Tim Burton. Movie? Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. Uh, who did that? Neil Gaiman. I think he wrote that. There's a little door in Coraline where she kind of has to like kind of cut it out of the wallpaper. And then she uses that to travel to the other world and back and forth. Hmm. Reminded me of that. I don't know. Again, I'm sure neither of those had anything to do with this, but I- I'm wondering if there's kind of these themes from like fairy tales, like going into a tree or like, the little cupboard door, even in Harry Potter, you know, he lives in the door under the stairs. Yeah. Um, there's always like these little themes from childhood that maybe th- this movie is like, if you just took the imagination world, that's almost like a kid's movie, a older kid's movie. If you took yeah. out all the war stuff, but then if you took out all the imagination stuff and just kept the other parts, that's a hardcore adult movie. <laughs> Not a hardcore adult movie, but a very like violent you know, it, that on its own, even, it, you know, take out all the, the pan stuff. Yeah. That's that could be a good movie, even just on its own. Yeah. So I, I think, he again, that he did a really good job, Del Toro, of mixing these two different types of movies together into one pretty cohesive story mm-hmm. that you feel fine going back and forth between the two. Yeah. One no, other uh, Guillermo Del Toro movie I just thought of that I did see. It was um, Kate. Kate. Tom Cruise's wife, Kate, uh, somebody. Uh, no. Yeah. Kate, no. Katie. Not. Katie. 
Katie Holmes? Yes. Dawson's Creek. Yes. Girl. She was in a movie with Guy Pierce, I think, called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, I think. It was another movie with a little girl and they move into a house, but there are these creatures in the basement, these little creatures that come out and something about like stealing your teeth. It's like a, it, most of his movies are kind of horror based. Right. But that one was more modern. What was that Disney movie that came out recently? Moana? Yeah. This is the same name? Yeah. They called her Princess Moana, but it's spelled, I think in here they had two N's and I think the Disney version is just M-O-A-N-A. This was M-O-A-N-N-A. I don't know if there's any relation between that, but that seemed a little strange. Yeah, uh, I, th- I actually thought of that too. I just thought of it now that it was Moana. And uh, one other thing I thought of watching this, <laughs> I don't know if anybody has this. I would love to get someday a collection of books, fake books from movies. Oh, yeah. The book she has is called The Book of Crossroads. Mm-hmm. Then there's, you know you know me, The Babadook Movie with the, yeah, the pop-up book of that would be great. terrors or whatever it's yeah. called. And then there's like the never-ending story. He's got his book. Yeah. Uh, the Princess Bride. Princess. Well, that's a real book though. It is? Well, the book, The Princess Bride. I believe it was a, a book before it was a movie. And then yeah. they kind of made a movie about oh, the book yeah. where the book huh. is a book. I didn't know that. I thought it was just a story. Like, I didn't realize it was an actual book. And then there's the book about the movie, The Princess Bride, that I think Carrie, what's his name? Carrie Ewell's. The guy who played Wesley. Oh, yeah. I think he wrote the book about the movie, about the book. I think that would be cool to have this collection of, like, fake books. Yeah. There's a book in Donnie Darko. Would there be something in them or just the covers? I mean, if they were, if they had stuff in them, all all the better. I wouldn't just want I've seen that. um, What's funny, I've actually seen that people have gone to great lengths to accurately reproduce the diary that belongs to Indiana Jones's father in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That would be awesome. I've seen multiple versions of those, and there was one like I've seen some really bad ones online, but I, but I ha- I saw one or two that were over a thousand dollars, but they were almost exact reproductions of the prop because the person had gotten a hold of the prop book, right, and was able to reproduce the pages like very very accurately, and the cover was aged. It looked like the journal that he, or the diary that he had. Have you read S? The um, no, that book has that feel of a, a book from a movie. Yeah, because it's it's a book, so you could just read it straight through. There's an actual story, but then there's all the notes written in the margins. Mm-hmm. There's stuff shoved in there, like postcards and like yeah. little maps that you pull out. It reminds me of this kid. When I, so when I was little, easily my favorite book that I would always go to the library to get, and then eventually, uh, I think my parents got me my own copy of it. It had to do. It was like the Postman or something like that, or or something. I think like the Postman was a movie, but it was this little kids book that was about a Phantom Tollbooth. No, it was a. Oh. It was a. It was about this like postal postal worker who was going around to this little town and delivering the mail to everybody. But all the pages were like little um, they were envelopes. You could pull the letters out and you would open up the letter and it would be like someone's oh, letter cool. that they wrote to someone and you could put it back in. So it was one of those like interactive kids books that had all the right, mail right. that was in it. Or there'd be a postcard and you could pull the postcard up. Or uh, It was awesome just because it's like that was one of the few books other than like a pop-up book. But it was a regular size, you know, it was like an eight by six size hardcover book and then you'd flip through it. Yeah. I don't remember the story or like what happens in it, but I just remember that being the coolest thing where that it was like you could pull these letters out and all these little things were in the book. Those, I think the same thing with S. It's a great book, but you have to buy it. 
you can't get it from a library because all right. that stuff would you, you don't know if it's in the right place or if it's even there right uh yeah i don't know they don't, I don't feel like they make books like that very often anymore no, that was jj abrams right who did yeah. that yeah well yeah it's jj abrams and somebody else they did it together. yeah 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 it's i definitely recommend that it's a great experience and it's a book you read more than once because of the way it is you're gonna get yeah that's different cool. things out of it the other obvious movie reference i kept going back to was the movie labyrinth the uh, oh, david, the, bowie, yeah, david movie, bowie one yeah which not really anything similar no. but I mean, Except the idea of the a babe, labyrinth and, um, yeah. Because well. they both involve a baby, baby right. boy, actually. Yeah, I mean, the idea of a labyrinth is pretty mythological Yeah. idea. I mean, like I said, it goes back to, you know, I read, that, like I said, that book, The Minotaur Takes a Break, which talks about that and the mythology of it. And, and I feel like at some point in some high school class, we learned about that, like that aspect of mythology and, and the labyrinth. I don't know if there's a big impact on that on Spanish culture. I feel like that's the one thing you watch a movie like this and are, were there things in here that we missed because, you know, it's it's about Spanish culture and right. did, did we miss something or are there other hints and things in here? Are there themes or stories that are right. directly related the war to that? Itself well, in... but, but the war itself is sort of the background, just provides the time period of what was going on. Yeah. And if you had a better understanding of the history of the Spanish War, maybe you'd understand the the difference between who was the occupying force and, and, and the you know, the rebels, the guerrillas in the in the woods. But more what I'm saying is more like are there other aspects of Spanish culture that we didn't see or that we didn't get in this movie because we don't have that background Could or be. I didn't get the sense that we were missing anything but maybe there is something extra you might get out of this if you well true the other thing too is that we um you know if we end up putting any clips in here they're they're going to be the uh you know the, the overdubbed version of right. of it where it's said in English we didn't listen to that ver- or watch that version we watched the Spanish version with the, um, subtitle. with the subtitles and I think that's the other thing too. What do we lose? It's just like reading a book that got translated from you know one language to English. What do you lose? Like, right. Oh, if you would have read, you know, people who are able to do that. Oh, if you would have, you could understand the Spanish. You would if you get it differently. Like that word. Yeah, that word does mean could be translated that way, but could also mean this. So there's all those things that I think you lose when you watch a foreign film and not being able to understand the original language sure. of it. Uh, I think because uh, I noticed one thing. Not to cut you, but one thing. The movie's called Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. but there's no point in the movie in which he anyone refers to anyone as pan and maybe that's because pan is a I, and i don't know it has something to do with fawn because I when think the title pan comes is up the head fawn from like yeah. according to like shakespearean thing i don't know if it even goes back to greek but i think he was supposed to be like the king of fawns or something like that well when you saw that at the end when the credits came up which are of course in spanish it said it had in Spanish. It said something about the fawn, like the labyrinth. Yeah, el el de labyrinto del fauna. Right. So, and then this English subtitle under it said Pan's labyrinth. Right. Pan, you know, of course, apostrophe s. Yeah, I mean, I just think I'm wondering, like, all oh, other things that we, you know, we didn't we didn't see in the movie or, or missed because it's. I think this is a struggle you always have. This is the first movie that we, or no, second movie. Did we second movie we did with subtitles? I think it's the first. Well, there was the, um, yeah, there's the first, because the, the Alfred Hitchcock one was not subtitled. Right. I don't know if there were scenes where he, yeah, he just had, but yeah, so I mean, and we're, we obviously will be watching more more films that are that are subtitled. Yeah, we got a, a ton of them. <laughs> well, in um, Easy Rider, there's some Spanish 
or Mexican as I called it, being spoken <laughs> so in the in the beginning, but it wasn't even subtitled. You just kind of had to guess what they were saying. But I think going with the subtitles the way we did it, we're, we should be losing the least amount of original intention. I think with the dub, they try sometimes they try to match words with mouth movements more than the original meaning. So I think going with the subtitles, we're probably better off. And I know un poco Spanish, like very little. So I feel like there were definitely some words that I could pick out that seemed to be lining up pretty well with the subtitles. So I think with in that aspect, hopefully we didn't really lose much. It's one of those things you'll never, unless you speak the language, right. you're, you're never going to know. Uh, it's just one of those things you get into when, when you watch a foreign film. I think you're still able to get it. And I think it also allows you to, you really have to rely on other aspects of the movie. I think you notice them more, just the acting of things, because yes. you're not, you're having to follow along and, you know, read what, you're essentially having to read the movie yeah. as it's going Hard on. Hard to take notes while you're reading. Yeah, that was <laughs> kind of difficult, because you can't, you, know, you can't look away. You're going to miss what right. somebody says. You don't hear it. Did you catch, uh, it's kind of the first, right when they get into the the house for the first time and they're going to bed, and uh, Ophelia's mother asks her to tell the baby a story, and Ophelia Ophelia starts telling a story about like a rose on a mountain. I don't remember the full story, but I think it's supposed to almost be either about her, Ophelia, or her mother. It's supposed to be this beautiful flower that only blossoms once a year or something, but it's surrounded by all these thorns and bad things, so nobody wants to risk like going to mm-hmm. it. I don't know if if it that's supposed to kind of be a story about her. She's this oh, yeah. beautiful thing, and but she's surrounded by all this evil. And yeah, uh, that's a good point. I, I, there's a couple story, you know, when she's reading from the book and I was trying to catch, is this really just supposed to be a metaphor about her life? It kind of was. I mean, she opened the book at one point and it's basically like a bloody uterus. Right. And her mother's like, right. Yeah. Almost miscarrying. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I thought it was a great movie and really kind of delved into that whole, uh, I did a great job of taking a child's imagination and really making it hard to determine whether or not what we saw was real or just her her imagination kind of dealing with all the the struggles that were going on in her life at the time right and it never gets gets to the point some movies that would really bother me like i don't know if this is real and in this movie i don't need to know if it's real or not it'd be great if i did but the stories go together so well that it doesn't it doesn't matter if it was real or not yep because either way what happened was going to happen well, yeah totally agree all right so two thumbs up it sounds like Yes, four four if you're counting. I think it is actually, so Uh, now we're going to have to cut that out. (laughs) Uh, That's it for this episode of Criterion on the Couch. You can find the show notes at criteriononthecouch.com slash Pan's Labyrinth. Next time, we'll be discussing It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Criterion Couch, and on Instagram, we're at Criterion on the Couch. I'm Adam Urich with Jim Assessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time.